0: Welcome to another show, Coffee with Kareem. Guess what, Kareem's having coffee today. Woohoo! Love this stuff. Mmm. I like it strong, sweet, and creamy myself. Yeah, I guess I've become a little snobby when it comes to my coffee. It's like when I go to someone's house, I'm like, hey, did you have any coffee? They're like, yeah, sure. And they, like, pull out some instant coffee. I'm like, uh, no thanks. I'd rather not have any. But yeah, um... I like to purchase my beans, fair trade, light or medium roast. I grind them every morning and uh, pull out my French press and have a good time. Really good. I wanted to share a couple of facts about coffee, also known as the wine of Islam. How did it get that name? Uh, Well, we're going to learn that today. But a few fun facts for our listeners out there. Coffee is the second largest commodity in the world after oil As you know, oil is a big deal. I mean, we've had Operation Freedom uh, wars in the past. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll have Operation Caffeine, bring caffeine to, you know, countries that don't like our coffee drinking. Um, That wouldn't be a bad thing. Coffee is also considered a fruit, which I love because now when my wife tells me you're not eating enough fruit, I'm going to say, hey, I have a smoothie of fruit every morning. It's called coffee. Guess who's the leading consumer of coffee? USA, baby, at approximately 146 billion cups of coffee drunk every year. And approximately 80% of all adults in the U.S. drink coffee, according to the Food and Drug Administration. Which is really interesting fact, because, you know, our current political environment, there's a lot of negative association with the Muslim world. And, uh, you know, next time you go to Dunkin' Donuts And Starbucks and what have you Remember that that cup of magical elixir Came to you because of your Muslim friends out there So, hopefully we can all have a cup of coffee together And uh, talk things out a bit more I mean, that would be great So, let's talk a bit more about the history of coffee and, And why is it called the Wine of Islam? Well, first of all The word for coffee in Arabic is kahwa, and kahwa was actually a term that described wine in Arabic as well. So it kind of got passed on to this new elixir that was discovered, and I'm sure many Muslims were like, finally, we've got something we can drink now too. And um, when coffee spread to other non-speaking Arabic lands such as, you know, Turkey, they called it kahwa with a V. And this kahva eventually evolved into coffee or cafe. So that's where we get those two words from, also from the Arabic language originally. So where does coffee actually come from? Um, Well, many sources suggest that it was first, uh, it originated in Ethiopia, eastern Africa, and brought over to southern Arabia by Yemeni uh, traders. And in Yemen, it was, you know, harvested and became very popular among social and spiritual circles, specifically um, Sufi tariqahs. And uh, some sources say that, you know, the Shadili tariqah is one that um, integrated this into their social and spiritual practices. So, for instance, drinking coffee, uh, they would do it in kind of a ceremonial fashion where you would brew it and then kind of pass a bowl around and everyone would take a sip and and keep drinking. uh, And then they would go into... Um, spiritual mantras and chanting Uh, they would read quran or or stay up late to to pray uh, to hajjud etc and so it was a it was an integral part of social and spiritual life in, in southern arabia and as it kind of moved uh north um when it was first received in mecca it was actually banned uh in 1511 because the leaders there believed that it caused radical thinking this was also the case when coffee entered places like cairo and uh, other parts of the Muslim world. And it wasn't until the mid-1600s that an Ottoman um, mufti uh, or legal scholar came out and just said, okay, we're going to halalify this. Um, it's all good. It doesn't intoxicate. So, you know, drink up and, and let's enjoy this. And, and by that point, you had, of course, many aspects of Muslim culture uh, developing what we would call the first cafes, where people would come together, socialize, exchange intellectual ideas, and of course, uh, converse in all kinds of different matters. By the mid to uh, late 1600s, it starts to enter into Europe. And when it first gets to places like Italy, uh, it was actually considered to be uh, satanic. So it was also banned there. However, Pope Clement Seventh loved coffee so much that he lifted the ban and had coffee baptized so to speak and that was approximately around 1600 as well uh and what's funny is even in 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 sweden uh, up until 1746 the swedish government made it illegal to even have coffee paraphernalia including cups and dishes so it's pretty funny how people in general when we're introduced to something new we don't quite understand it um we tend to have this position to just say no, because if it's unfamiliar, we can be afraid of it. And obviously, if we don't understand something, we're not sure of the total consequences. But thankfully, coffee took a strong hold in um, many parts of the world, and uh, until today, uh, it's a very popular drink. And you know, as an American and here in the United States, as as we learned, it's it's probably the largest consumed uh, drink now what's interesting about coffee is when the way they used to brew it in yemen was very different than how you would have it today in starbucks or wherever else you go so as you know coffee is a it's like a greenish reddish bean and what the early muslims and arabs used to do was they would just boil this bean and mix it with some spices usually things like cardamom And you can still find this type of coffee around the Muslim world. You know, they call it Arabian coffee. And it almost looks like a green tea. And that stuff is like rocket fuel, man. It's so strong and uh, will keep you buzzed for like 8 to 12 hours, if not longer. And this is, you know, contrary to what many of us think, a dark roast of coffee is not actually stronger or more potent and that's one of the things I learned when I went to uh, a coffee farm in Hawaii. Hawaii, by the way, is the only place in the United States that uh, grows coffee. So I went to a farm there. Um, the tour guide was teaching us that the more you roast coffee, the more you kill the caffeine. So it's like when you you basically cook it down. So basically, if you want coffee that has a good caffeine punch, you want to go with light roasts and uh and uh, maybe some mediums too, which is usually what I do. I get a nice light or medium roast, and and I dark and I brew it nice and strong, and that's just like woo! It gives you a nice buzz. Uh, the concept of of roasting coffee, uh, historically, it's suggested that maybe the Persians were the first to introduce this concept, um, but I definitely got to give it to the Italians, man. I mean, they just took it to that next level. With, uh, you know, milk and cream and lattes and whatnot. And that's my sharing on coffee. I felt like I had to do it. I mean, the show's called Coffee with Kareem, so I needed to give it a little love. But uh, let's move on to our next topic for today, which is still connected to coffee, by the way. So so earlier I was I was mentioning that, um, you know, coffee was harnessed by certain uh, Muslim spiritual groups in southern Arabia, also known as Sufi Tariqahs. And uh, which means um, paths of the inner sciences of Islam, and I think that you know in the West we often associate Sufism with like Rumi, you know this wonderful uh, poet of of Persian descent, and um, and sometimes Sufism is kind of seen as its own religion that has nothing to do with Islam, or something even more New Agey that isn't you know connected to the tradition, which I think is one of the reasons why. Um, some Muslims themselves are like oh that 's whack, you know that 's not really our religion but uh, from my research and experience, I think one way to understand Sufism is it 's the heart of Islam uh, in other words it 's the it 's the teachings that help the practitioner psycho spiritually evolve and uh, experience these notions of transcendence and transformation Uh, oftentimes in a lot of you know certain islamic institutions or muslim organizations i think there's a lot of emphasis on um exoteric understanding or practices in other words the the outside stuff you know, the rituals, the doctrine, the rules, the regulations, here's what you do, here's what you don't do, here's what you believe in, what you don't believe in. Um, but then you're just kind of left with that. And you just kind of memorize all these things, and you do all these things. But I find that in my work, um, especially with, you know, Muslims that grow up in the West, uh, and elsewhere, there's this like disconnect from a-, a sense of almost like personalizing your relationship with the divine. And I really think that has to do with a lack of healthy sufism and and sufism comes from uh most likely the arabic word tasawuf so the the purpose is purification and beautification of the self or or the ego and these spiritual sciences or inner sciences is another way to understand it in the contemporary terms it's it's basically islamic psychology so think about it like this if islam is a path to god i.e it's a deen Right That you fulfill uh, To establish that relationship With Allah And follow the guidance And the manual That he sent Um, Islamic psychology Is your individual journey On that path To God So we know that the pinnacle of consciousness, according to the Islamic tradition, is to be a muhsin, one who is beautified in their character, in their presence, and of course in their relationship to the divine. And how do you have a beautiful relationship with someone? Well, you have to love them, obviously. If you don't love somebody, it's going to be very hard to treat them well and with excellence and to actually care. So one of the things that Tasawwuf tries to harness is real practical love of God. And this is something that is attainable according to the Qur'an. For example, Allah SWT says says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ yuhibbul Muhsinin, Chapter 2, verse 195. Allah loves those who have excellence and beauty in their character. Allah SWT also mentions purification of the self in Surah al-Shams. Chapter 91, verse 7. سَوَّاهَا <laughs> فَجُورَهَا the translation is and by the soul and he who proportioned it and inspired it with the discernment of what is wicked or evil and what is good and righteous he has succeeded who purifies it in other words, this selfhood or this ego, and he who has failed um To purify it instills within it corruption or darkness. So the concept of purifying the self and having healthy psychology is all over the Quran. Those are just a few examples, but it's filled with it. And like I said, bringing it back to this idea of love of God and adoring Allah subhanahu wa taala, which is one of the meanings of to be abdullah we always say we're, we're here to worship God and part of the meaning of abada is to serve and adore and love God because think about it when I say something like hey man you worship Michael Jordan um, when someone says that, you know that I don't literally mean the person like gets down and prostrates and worships Michael Jordan, but what it means is they're obsessed with the with the guy. They love, um, you know, his his game. They know his stats. They have all his jerseys and his and his T-shirts and his sneakers. And everything's Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. It's like man, you worship the guy, right? So the concept here is if you love and adore Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, that's what's on your mind the most. That's what you are striving towards the most. Uh, that is what to sow. A ...is really trying to do. Um, and you can't love someone... ...unless you really feel intimately connected... ...or bonded to that person. Similarly, you can't really love Allah... Subhanahu wa ta'ala ...if all you do is practice... ...external rituals... ...and have creed and, and dogma memorized... ...but it doesn't really penetrate your heart... ...and your consciousness. You don't really perceive the world in that way. And that's why you meet a lot of insincere people... ...who on the outside look religious... But they're not very sincere, Um, you know, like they, they believe in all this stuff or they claim they believe in all these things like, yeah, be honest, be good to your family, but they're constantly, you know, using the religion to manipulate people and situations for their own agenda whether it's within husband and wife or, you know, a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law and the son. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways this plays out. And it's like, well, do we really believe that God sees and hears everything and that we're going to be accountable? Because if we did, how could you treat somebody like that? How could you talk like that? How could you say you didn't do something when you really did do something? You know, this is a lack of sincerity. But these are just kind of some examples of trying to, you know, enlighten everybody out there that um, illumination And connection with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala also has to come through experience, and has to come through um, taking it to that next step to cultivate your internal uh, world. Uh, Or else, what's the point of doing all these rituals? What's the point of having all these nice books? You know, you read all these nice books on Fiqh and whatnot. Um, One of my teachers, he put it in a beautiful way. He said, "Learning, you know, Tasawwuf is like." Uh, cultivating a beautiful garden with flowers and and a nice landscape and all this stuff, nurturing the grass. Um, And sharia, or the external practices, is like building a fence to protect your garden. And if you don't have a garden, what's the point of having these tall walls and these fences um, without anything to actually protect on the inside? And the opposite is also true. What's the point of cultivating all this inner beautification if you have no sharia to protect it and to preserve it. So you have to have the inside and the outside uh, working cohesively and in harmony, or else you're, you're missing a big part of the picture. You have to first accept a basic premise, which is that the divine is perfect, and you're not. You're a human being. Therefore, you're always going to have folly and limits and growth areas. And if you can accept that there's always room to grow then it means there is always purification to be had. There's always this internal struggle uh, that, that you must be embarking on. There's never a point of arrival where you, you know, Khalas, I graduated from Islamic, you know, spirituality and religion. Now I can just kind of sit back and wait to enter Jannah, right? No, I mean, because if I want to make something better or more excellent or more beautiful— I have to first acknowledge the ugliness or the limits or the incompetence that exists in that thing or that person, or else what is the point, right? So this is also about deeply reflecting and being humble. And this comes through the gate of sincerity. All right. And sincerity is, in my opinion, it's the crown of all character traits, because without it, you can't really get far in life if you're not even honest with yourself and honest with uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's kind of the beauty of having this type of divine relationship because you can play games with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your parents, with with people. You can put on a nice public face and put on a show, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows exactly who you are and He sees right through you. Hence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran chapter 50 verse 16 Um, He created the human being And he knows exactly what we whisper to ourselves He's closer to you than your jugular vein So to bring this all together If Tasawuf is the heart of Islam And love is rooted in the heart Then Tasawuf is also about loving God And systematizing the pathway Or the art and science of How do I really personalize my relationship to the divine? Because it's easy to say you should love God more than anything else. You should have Ihsan in your actions. You should have taqwa and so on and so forth. But if there's no system um, or science to that, then how exactly are you going to embody those principles realistically? And that's what Tasawaf is all about. It's about offering that path with clear direction, mentoring, and um, exercises, which helps purify the heart and purify the mind so that you can see more clearly and you can't have vision if your sight is blind or blurred or foggy because of the ugliness or state of your own soul. And uh, I think that's you know a good intro for now and certainly we will come back to s- some of these themes uh, in, in future shows. But to kind of end with today, I wanted to offer uh, a historical frame uh, of how to understand Tassawuf in, in Islamic civilization. So if you think about the Prophet Muhammad earth in, in and in the companions, the way they lived religion was as organized spirituality. And what I mean by that is, I mean, the first half of the prophet's mission, um, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on rituals and laws. That didn't come until the Medini period, so about 12 years in. And the the first half of the mission was all about purifying character, purifying the the mind of of, um, unhealthy beliefs, um, improper uh, constructs about people ourselves reality and of course god right so this is why a lot of the early revelations that came in mecca focused on theology focused on the hereafter and uh, accountability it was very existential and um emphasized the 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 importance of humans being aware of their choices and their actions because you know it's all going to come back to you whether in this life or the next uh and and later things like the five daily prayers and the prohibition of alcohol came down i mean this is really fascinating when you think about it you know that the first uh decade of the the early muslims uh they didn't pray five times a day right the focus was heavily social activism fighting oppression protecting the weak uh removing um you know constructs of racism and sexism and so on and so forth uh and and then then prayer comes after. And this makes a lot of sense, because if I fall in love with a woman, okay, I'm not expected necessarily to uh, fulfill all of her needs or expectations or prescriptions unless there is a formal contract with that person, i.e. marriage. So, The early Muslims were focused on building spirituality and this connection with the divine. And once that was established, prayer was revealed to anchor them in their relationship to the divine. Because praying five times a day is not a chore, like doing the laundry. It's just another thing I need to get done. But it's actually a time where you get to step into a divine conversation. You get to have intimacy and contact with your creator. And if you don't do this, then you feel this kind of long-distance relationship and your heart's just not in it. You see how it all ties together? And so similarly, just like anybody out there who's married or, or has a, you know, a bonded relationship with even a parent or a brother or a cousin or whatever, if you don't ask about that person for years or ever call them or text them, then that person's going to question the nature of your relationship with them. Like, do they really love me? Do they care? So what about when we claim we love God? And we've taken the shahada, which is our contract that binds us to this commitment. And then we no longer, uh, we don't even bother connecting with the one we were supposed to have this intimate loving relationship with. So Tasawuf really tries to um, build this reality and help uh, each person experience this. Uh, through the methods and systems that have been traditionally sourced, now, how did that all kind of come to, to come together? Well, as Islam spread and left Arabia, it went to places first like Persia uh, and Syria and Egypt, and in these places, they already had um, you know obviously rich history, they had existing power structures, religious traditions. And you know the, the early Muslims, when they left Arabia and went to these countries, they didn't like show up with a bunch of books uh, on fiqh and aqidah and, and hadith, and they passed out pamphlets to all the locals, right? That's not what happened. They came and they exemplified the teachings and taught through words. And over the centuries, all of this knowledge that they brought with them um, became systematized and categorized into the subject matter's ...of Islamic sciences. Hence, uh, the madhahib, or the schools of of sacred law, were formulated. Um, Schools of theology and aqidah were formulated. Um, Hadiths began to become uh, collected into works. Um, And, of course, spirituality, or the inner sciences of psychology and spirituality, became systematized through the tariqah. Now, this is the case with every religion when it spread out of its local region... Uh, to other lands in order to perpetuate and preserve the teachings they needed to systematize the subject matters of the religion and islam is no different and tasawuf is one of those sciences and when you research uh traditional tasawuf all of these um pathways trace back to the companions of the prophet muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam all of them go back to ali ibn abi talib with exception to one uh, which goes back to abu bakr as-siddiq so again i encourage you to research more about this and and learn about it and pay attention to the themes in the quran when it talks about the self and and love and connection to god uh, again this is rooted in our tradition. It's not just some, you know, made-up, new-agey stuff. Now, of course, there are, you know, what you may call deviant groups out there that claim to be Sufis or um, are extreme even in their tasawwuf. just like you have extremism and orthodoxy and and, and militant Islam and so on and so forth. So it's it's like any other um, tradition. It's going to have a spectrum of interpretation, practice, and application – Uh, in different cultures and societies but that shouldn't turn us away because we could argue the same thing about the religion of islam as a whole right where there's a lot of people out there that take it and use it for their own agenda and essentially any religion or any um, framework of thought or philosophy is going to be expressed through and by the people that attempt to practice it or embody it and interpret it. So it always comes down to one's psychology, one's intentions and one's interpretations. Hence why Sufism is so crucial to healthy um, Islamic flourishing, because if we don't have the heart of Islam or the heart of the matter uh, in a body, then the body does not have any blood, it doesn't have any passion, it doesn't have any love, it doesn't have any warmth. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why some of us feel like our heart isn't really in our religious practice. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share with your friends. And I look forward to having a cup of coffee with you next time. Enjoy.